This podcast is sponsored by the OAG Punctuality League. The OAG Punctuality League 2016 reveals on-time performance for the world's airlines and airports. The industry's most comprehensive annual ranking returns with the best performers. Airline categories include mainline airlines, low-cost carriers, and top performers from North America, Latin America, EMEA, and Asia-Pacific. Visit oag.com slash punctualityleague2016. Japan Airlines, better known as JAL, reported fourth quarter earnings last week, and they were pretty great. 14% operating margin for the quarter and 14% for the year. Seth, roughly where does that put them on the global profitability rankings of airlines? Oh, a lot closer to the top than to the bottom. Uh, Higher, actually, than any legacy airline around the world, uh, except for those high-flying U.S. carriers. And then there's JAL's rival, All Nippon, who reported a 9% operating margin for the quarter and 9% for the year. Not bad at all. Doesn't blow your doors off, but they are a healthy airline, aren't they, Seth? Oh, absolutely healthy. Shoot. This is going to be a boring episode. Everybody's happy. Oh, I'm sure we'll find some source of misery. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. In addition to the Japanese airline market, we'll talk about the recent results at Jet Airways, Indigo, and Allegiant. Plus, of course, Avianca's pick of United. Do we approve of these kids getting together? Like it matters. They're going to do what they want. It's the 21st century, and why listen to us? We're just a couple of guys in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're starting in Japan, looking at one of our favorite industry rivals, JAL and All Nippon, ANA. JAL has been posting great results and ANA good results, though JAL is clearly doing better. Seth, how much of JAL's performance is attributable to the bankruptcy going back to 2010? Oh, a fair amount of it. You know, they uh, had a cathartic, I mean, very painful uh, from, from the perspective of a lot of our stakeholders bankruptcy and they slashed their costs uh, and you know we've seen this elsewhere around the world certainly in the uh, US when airlines that had businesses that were in other ways fundamentally sound uh, but had huge cost problems were able to really write their ships through bankruptcy you know bankruptcy doesn't solve revenue problems doesn't take care of other things but it does solve cost problems JAL had cost problems and uh, yeah it, it emerged uh, just with, with a cost structure against which ANA just uh, couldn't compete. A lot of this still, I mean, that, that was the moment when it became one of the most profitable, as I mentioned in the introduction, profitable legacy airlines in the world. Uh, it, that was bankruptcy. No question about that. Do you see this race tightening as the bankruptcy advantage gets further and further in the rearview mirror? Yeah, well, it's not just a matter of guesswork. I mean, it's you know you look at the numbers, and and that in fact is is what is happening uh, to some degree. Uh, you, you mentioned those numbers, you know, fourteen percent uh, for JAL, nine percent for ANA. You know, so obviously JAL still doing considerably better, but that fourteen percent for JAL was actually down a bit from the previous year, and ANA's margin was up uh, a bit. So they are uh, converging somewhat. 
And, and that, as time goes on, is what tends to happen. You know, look, uh, Jal's workers, for example, who uh, gave a lot during bankruptcy are naturally, uh, you know, going as the years go on to going to say, hey, look, the airline's doing fine now. Uh, we, we made the sacrifices that you had asked of us. And, and uh, you know, now we want to share in, in, in the gains. So to its other stakeholders, suppliers, and so forth. So so that's just naturally what happens. Uh, you know, there wasn't going to be that massive gap uh, in cost structure between two other between two airlines that in other ways are, are similar competitors uh, you know forever that, that was going to change both airlines suffered from lower revenues why are they seeing revenue pressure in Japan well for a number of reasons I mean look every time we report one of those new Chinese carrier routes uh, you know nonstop from somewhere in China and you know not only uh, Beijing Shanghai Guangzhou anymore but from you know secondary and you might say tertiary cities in China to uh, points across the globe um, you know in many cases Cases, those flights are carrying passengers who might have otherwise connected uh, in, in Tokyo. Um, you, you also just have the overall capacity situation in, in East Asia. It's, it's just a part of the world where, uh, you know, very much unlike the U.S., uh, for for example, you know, capacity growth uh, outstripping demand growth is, you know, seems to be the case. I mean, that's often what lower unit revenues signify and uh, look e- even even in terms of domestic flying in Japan uh that was a market for a long time that was not all that competitive it uh was was basically JAL and ANA and uh for a while i mean there was you know Skymark the one low cost carrier a- and that is a situation that has changed dramatically you know domestic japan is is not a duopoly anymore jason uh, just before we uh, began recording i went into dio and, and looked up the numbers just five years ago, well, if we take the fourth quarter, since that's the numbers that we're, that we're, that we're talking about here, uh, you know, in the fourth quarter, five years earlier, so 2011, of all the seats flying domestically in Japan, uh, just 6% of those seats were on what DO anyway classifies as low cost carriers. So that was basically Skymark. I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, pretty much all there was. 6% uh, for this just completed fourth quarter, the one we're talking about here, that was up to 18 uh, percent you know so we're talking about a, a market where uh, low-cost carriers basically didn't exist for, for you know practically speaking uh just a few years ago uh, and, and now they're everywhere um uh, they're you know they're almost Almost more than you can, you know, if you covered market, then you can name off the the top of your head anymore. And so, so the world has changed dramatically for 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 perspective. By the way, if you're wondering, you know, you think of sort of another giant domestic market, the U.S. Okay, you know, in the U.S., that figure for the same quarter, the fourth quarter, was thirty two percent. So you know, even more low cost carrier penetration. But that thirty two percent compared to. 31% five years earlier. So the LCC revolution, you know, in terms of just completely changing things in the market, is kind of done in the US. I mean, you have the, you know, the faster growing lo- ultra low cost carriers and so forth. But but in Japan, the world has uh, completely changed for JAL and ANA domestically, especially even though not only domestically. ANA apparently is now slightly bigger internationally than it is domestically. How big of a deal is this? Well, it's it's important because of what I just said before. Uh, yeah, what used to be the case was that JAL was the uh, the considerably larger international carrier, and ANA, uh, although it flew internationally, flew long haul, uh, much more domestically focused. Uh, and, and yeah, that that. You don't have that dramatic gap anymore, and and that's I mean 
with all the international threats, you know, you can only say that ANA uh, was probably wise to, to to balance its network a little bit more in the face of all that short haul, low cost competition. Sure, there are all kinds of threats around the world. Yes, but we know, Jason, you and I have discussed in the past. It, it's in the short haul markets where LCCs tend to have uh, their greatest cost advantages. Uh, you know, tend to just you know kind of be untouchable in terms of competing on a cost basis. By the legacy airlines, although you know they they, they certainly try, uh, and so in the face of all of that, you know you have to say that A was wise to uh, to diversify and focus uh, internationally, intercontinentally. Although at the moment, uh, hard to find any refuge anywhere. It's 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 pretty brutal out there competitively in long haul markets, just as much as in uh, short haul markets from the perspective of these Japanese carriers. I asked the same question regarding Mexican carriers recently. Let me do the same for the Japanese carriers. Does JAL and ANA, do they have anything to fear from Donald Trump? Well, look, it's 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 a risk, and and uh, ANA actually said that it worries about uh, American protectionism. Uh, you know, ANA is going to be flying to Mexico City. Of course, Japanese automakers have have plants in Mexico, and uh, there, there's just a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, right? Companies like to know where the world is going, and I don't think anybody knows right now. So even though it's you know too early to conclude that this is all going to be awful, uh, you know, for for these you know, for for Japanese airlines, yeah. I mean, if the question is, are they concerned? Um, the answer quite clearly is is uh, is yes, they are uh, they are concerned, and uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll have to see where this all ends up. It's it's uh, these are questions with implications far beyond the airline industry, um, but but certainly uh, certainly for the airline industry as well. It's probably a question I'll keep asking too. <laughs> just just keep it on the template and uh, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, let's thank our sponsor, the OAG Punctuality League 2016. Learn more at oag.com slash punctuality league 2016. Avianca has chosen United for some sort of alliance in the Western Hemisphere. Do you think it's going to be a joint venture, an equity stake, or something else? And why did they pick United over Delta and Copa? Yeah, and, and of course, to be clear, we, you know, our understanding is that they picked United over Delta and, and, and Copa. You know, nobody ever really confirmed who was talking, but you know, f- fairly wide, widely reported by by uh, by credible news organizations that that yeah, that it was going to be one of those airlines partnering. With Avianca, well, I mean, look, part of the answer might be at least, and, and that's all we can do is, is speculate, right? That there's there's just less upheaval involved in in picking United, you know. So so if 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 that was the starting point, you know, had you asked me who would just sort of be the easiest one to pick, I would have I would have told you United because uh, look from from an alliance perspective, had it been Delta and Avianca, that could have uh, had all kinds of other second and third order effects. Who 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 knows what that would have meant, right? And then uh, if you have Avianca moving, well, first of all, Avianca to Copa in a second, but you know, Avianca is a partner with Copa within Star Alliance. You'd have all kinds of. Uh, you know, if somebody's going to switch alliances, which I mean, it's not to say that that would have happened, but if Avianca is going to move over to Sky Team, you know, you get regulators involved in, uh, you know, does does somebody have too much power? All those kinds of things. With Copa too, speaking of regulators, although they're in the Star Alliance, that could have raised some eyebrows too. You know, if if you had uh, those two competitors, and they do compete for you know for for some of the same important traffic flows uh, via their respective hubs. You know, if if you had them getting together in some way, looking for immunity to to uh, you know to coordinate, who knows, schedules, pricing, 
that could have that could have been an issue. So you know, with with United, I mean, this is just you know United doing what uh, what and I mean. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but uh, you know, if, if there's going to be some combination of equity investment or you know something strategic, maybe a joint venture down the road, you know, that you know, it's kind of like Delta doing it with Aeromexico, you know, where, where they were already partners and, and uh, got that immunity. Delta, of course, has you know has its relationship with coal as well. I mean, it, so yeah, it, it, there's there's just less upheaval, and I guess the starting point would be that you would need a strong case to pick somebody other than United who was probably just the uh, uh, ju- just the most natural partner um, and an airline in United who uh, might have been willing to give more just because it had more just kind of more of a hole to fill in South America. Lufthansa Group had a media event in New York last week. They mentioned how well their long-haul premium economy is doing. Correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, but uh, they have premium economy on the mainline unit and Austria so far, not Swiss, not Brussels. That's correct. It's kind of interesting because Swiss is taking these uh, these new 777-300ERs without premium economy, as, as you mentioned. And so um, you, you almost think that that would have been opportunity, you know, if, if they... Uh, if they planned uh, to to, uh, to have it for Swiss, you know, very often when you have, you know, when you're taking new airplanes anyway, that's that sort of you started on those, and then you go back, you go back and retrofit the others. Uh, so you might think that would indicate that they don't have plans uh, to do it anytime soon. But I asked them specifically that if there was a reason why it's not at Swiss, even though uh, uh, even though they say, and you know, there's no reason to doubt that it's that it's doing well um, at Lufthansa, and that you know it, it seems to be. Booking well for Austria, and it's 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 newer there. And they said no. They said they're you know they're they're always looking at it, and that uh, that it, it could in fact um, be there. And correct, you said it, it, Brussels Airlines as well. Uh, of course, uh, kind of new to the family as a wholly owned group for a long time. Lufthansa owned a little less than half of Brussels Airlines. Now a wholly owned unit where it's yeah entirely up to them what to do with it. Brussels Airlines ha- has an extra legroom, you know, kind of a you know one of something like what KLM has or like what uh, uh, Delta American United have had. Of course, a couple of those now getting true premium economy, but just sort of the extra legroom, your comfort plus or economy plus kind of thing. Brussels Airlines has that, but um, uh, but not a true premium economy product. Uh, so some some broader questions for, with Brus- for Brussels Airlines, sort of how it's going to fit in with the family you know, so, so they probably have some more things to think about there. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll see. Um, uh, like I said, if anything, maybe I'm a little surprised that they didn't take the opportunity with the new triple sevens to uh, to to roll it out at Swiss. But well, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that to see that coming. Seth, as you mentioned, you were actually at the press event. Did you learn anything that we didn't cover in this week's issue? You know, um, uh, one of the other journalists there asked them regarding Lufthansa's Jump uh, initiative. So Jump is. Um, this is the it, it's the, they have so many different you know low cost platforms everything it can be confusing. Jump is the one. Uh, it's Lufthansa branded flying. It looks just like everything else. They fly it with uh, the three forty dash three hundreds. Some of the sort of the more lower the lower yield more marginal markets. Uh, you know Frankfurt, uh, you know, Tampa, Cancun are a couple that come to mind. Um, so it looks like Lufthansa, but it's staffed with um, with with uh, pilots from the. the the city line unit, yeah, basically just just pilots who are who are paid less. Um, so so uh, so somebody asked else asked them if if at this point they were still in their dispute with mainline Lufthansa pilots, willing to trade away jump basically to let that go away. This this lower paid tier of pilots. 
uh, in exchange for something else uh, that that they want from the pilots. Last summer, it had been reported that that was on the table that they were willing to uh, to give that up. Uh, and and Lufthansa said that you know, right now they're not talking about that. They're just talking about pay with their. Uh, with their mainline pilots, uh, you know, and they emphasized again, sort of what I said before that look from a customer perspective, it's just, it's all the same thing. You know, densely configured planes, you know, more economy, less business class, all of that, but all of the, the, the same list tons of product. And I said to them, I said, well, I said, yeah, but, you know, presumably if these markets are all kind of the marginal markets that are only viable because of the lower pilot cost, then wouldn't those markets be a vulnerable? If uh, jump ever went away, uh, and they said, well, they said, um, you know, pilot costs are kind of just a small percentage of the overall costs on those routes. Um, uh, you know, most of the cost savings comes just from the higher density. You know, you could spread the cost among so many more seats. The thing about that is, and it's not, and I'm not, and I'm not picking on them here. It's you hear some of the same kinds of things from from some of the other uh, European airlines, and they're all struggling to figure out what to do. You know, in the face of just all the low cost capacity that's out there, but if if that's the case, then I mean you're taking a lot of strike days and hundreds of millions of dollars in in a lost revenue to get these things through. These things that are that yeah, I mean what they're saying is true. Yeah, pilot costs are not the biggest uh, cost item on long haul, but um, they're certainly using a lot of capital with their with their work groups with their pilots, especially to get these lower cost platforms. And then if they're sort of you know, in the end, not all that helpful anyway, then you sort of say, well, then why did you do that? Um, so anyway, I, I, I say all that just to paint the picture of you. You could just see these airlines really, you know, they feel like, well, we can't just do nothing. Um, but sometimes the something that they do uh, doesn't end up being the uh, solution anyway. So, uh, you know, an airline that obviously understands what it's facing, uh, you know, that does have a lot of opportunities, of course, everything going on with Etihad and so forth. We'll see where that all ends up. But uh but just operating in, in in what's still a very fragmented marketplace uh, compared to what its partner United, for example, faces in the U.S. Let's talk about the carrier that has more planes on order than any other carrier in the world. I'm talking about Indigo Airlines. This is a very healthy, very strong airline. However, in 2015, in the fourth quarter, they posted a 20% operating margin. That's fantastic. But a year later, that 20% is down to 10% in 2016. Seth, should Indigo be nervous? Well, uh, I mean, I guess everything's relative, right? Um, th- this is an airline that's still the best performer among the airlines in, in a giant, fast-growing market and a market that clearly has um, a-, a lot of opportunity. I mean, the per capita rates of flying uh, in India are so much lower at this point than even you know China and, and other other markets that are still developing. So um, there is all kinds of opportunity there. Now, look, there's sure there's a lot of new capacity. There are infrastructure issues in India. You know, a lot of airports where you, you can't operate as you might wish to. But this, by all appearances, is is a uh, it's an airline that has had you know already a lot of financial success. That is uh, that is rather disciplined. That uh, really understands the business it's getting into. I mean, it wants to be the you know the reliable corporate travel friendly short haul airline. Uh, it looks a lot like. Southwest Airlines in its sort of developing stages, um, an airline that doesn't just try to have the 
most dots on the map, but sort of a you know, very dense schedule of of um, you know lots of flights. Very often the best schedule in uh, key business travel uh, key business travel markets. I- India is a boom bust market. Um, that's that's just how it often is there. You know, airlines in general. You'll have uh, uh, years where things are very good and years where things are awful. You know, the best performer in a market like that is is uh, is, is going to be fine, and uh, Indigo is 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 rather clearly the best performer. And if Indigo saw its profit margin slashed, I can only imagine what happened to Jet Airways. Well, I don't have to imagine; I got it right here: two percent operating <laughs> margin in the fourth quarter. Yeah, two percent for the quarter and four uh, percent for the year. Uh, that four percent at least was up from the uh, year earlier figure but um you know perhaps of 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 greater concern the 2% that you mentioned for the quarter down from 9% a year earlier so in terms of you know looking at trends that that's that's kind of the most you know the most recent figure we have to work with which is uh which is a big decline uh, yeah look some things are, are are going well for jet it moved its european Hub, you know, sort of, sort of like a small hub that operates for for flights um, between India and, and uh, North America. Moved it from from Brussels to Amsterdam. Uh, that appears to have gone well. That, by the way, by all accounts, over the objections of its part owner Etihad. Etihad, uh, you know, reportedly again wanted it to move to Dusseldorf. Um, and in a sign of Etihad's perhaps waning influence at Jet, uh, Jet. Again, according to these accounts, I uh, said no and went to Amsterdam instead. Um, probably wise for for Jet. Uh, Etihad, of course, was trying to help its other partly owned uh, airline, Air Berlin. Uh, new flights to Dusseldorf would have helped feed Air Berlin, but uh, yeah, Amsterdam's just a bigger local market. And Jet, with the rights to sell to sell the local on those flights, you know, it can sell you know it can sell tickets to Amsterdam from uh, from the U.S. Uh, it was probably the um, the right move, and again, all things being relative, I mean, look, Jet Airways is is clearly better off than than its long haul competitor, its local long haul competitor, Air India. So you know, there's that. But uh, really, the answer for all of these airlines, partly to you know um, how th- how their futures uh, are going to look, is going to be what happens with with Air India. And as long as sort of all that excess capacity is allowed to be in the market, and the you know government continues supporting Air India. You know, it, it, that's always going to. There's always going to be a ceiling to how well uh, these airlines could do. Even though Air India itself uh, does seem to be doing somewhat better uh, than than had been the case for uh, over the decades. And as is tradition around here, we'd like to close on a high note. And lately, for high notes, all you need to do is check in on a U.S. carrier. <laughs> Just about any U.S. carrier will do. But it brings me to Allegiant. Seth, did they do better than every other carrier reporting? Yeah, uh, yeah, so far, uh, and and a 20% uh, operating margin for the fourth quarter, which is actually down a lot from 30% a year earlier, you know, before you ring the alarm bells. Um, uh, you know, they they say it was deliberate. They basically uh, you know, for them when they're running 30% margins, they say that to them means missed opportunities to just make more total dollars <laughs> even even if uh even if it means lower margins um by doing some more off peak flying for example uh you, you know they they just 
saw opportunities to operate some flights that would, that would be very profitable, but just um, but just drag down the overall margin uh, compared to when they restrict their flying more to just uh, just the very peak days uh, of the peak seasons. Uh, they did they did very well, uh, but this week, Jason, we have other uh, low cost carriers. Uh, in particular, reporting, and you know, we talk about European carriers. An airline like Ryanair is never going to put up, uh, you know, twenty percent margins uh, for for the fourth quarter, even though uh, for a full year they're always among the top, you know, two or three in the year. But but other U.S. carriers like like Spirit, you know, they can uh, they they can they can do very very well. So uh, uh, so so you might see the margin gap between Allegiant. And the rest of the airline world start to converge uh, somewhat. Allegiant, I, I think last time we put out our, our profitability ranking, they were they've been thirty uh, percent for the previous twelve months, and I think number two uh, it was like twenty three percent. I want to say Ryanair and um, Alaska, if you include Virgin America, were both uh, were both right at about twenty three percent. Alaska by itself would have been somewhat higher, but. Um, yeah, they're they're uh, they're doing fine. I just don't know that that twenty percent is um, is going to be the very highest in the world for the fourth quarter with uh, some of the others yet to come. And with that, we'll wrap episode sixty four of our little podcast. Seth, thank you for your insights as always. Next week we'll be back with Wizz Air, Ryanair, probably some other airlines of reported earnings, some other airline news. Until then, thanks for joining us. This podcast has been sponsored by the OAG Punctuality League. Learn more at oag.com slash punctuality league 2016.